This episode is brought to you by MyProducer.io, a new marketplace for film, TV, and commercial production staffing. MyProducer.io is a community focused on connecting talented producers and hiring managers with the next generation of crew. Job seekers can create a profile and apply to jobs for free. Employers can create 48-hour postings for free or choose from a variety of other low-cost options to get the right people hired. Visit MyProducer.io today and use code HWOOD25 to receive 25% off any paid posting. In this episode, I spoke with Mark Lee, an independent producer who first got his start working on Terminator 3. Mark and I talk about one of his first feature films, Entry Level, that starred D.B. Sweeney, Missy Pyle, and Kurt Wood Smith. We also go through his current approach to getting feature films made, which centers around using a pool of investor funds to spread risk across a bunch of projects. Mark later shares his views on improving casting diversity in the industry. And finally, we spoke about his recent work in the world of branded content, as Mark bridges the gap between Hollywood and big companies. I hope you enjoy. So super excited to be here with Mark E. Lee, based in Los Angeles. He's an independent producer and entertainment consultant. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So we go quite a bit back. Actually, I think since pretty much when I came to LA like 12 years ago, it's funny is I don't know if you remember this, but I was actually a background actor like and ended up being a stand in for one of your main actors in a feature that you were shooting. Do you remember this? Oh my goodness. That was a, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Was it DB Sweeney? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We we did a romantic comedy with DB Sweeney and Missy Pyle back in the mid two thousands. That's awesome. Uh, Tell us about that. What was it called? And sure. It was called entry level. It was a great romantic comedy written and directed by Douglas Horn, who's based out of the Seattle area. But it was a wonderful little film love story about a kind of a failed chef who at the age of 40 some, 50 needed to suddenly re-enter the workforce and try and go through unemployment and get all these jobs. And and he realizes that at the age of 40 something, he was just not well equipped to compete with the middle 20 somethings who had great computer knowledge and, and all that kind of thing. And he meets these this cast of characters, so to speak, through all of these interviews that all of them get sent on. They're all middle to upper aged. One of them is a retiree and they all basically go from interview to interview together and they all get rejected every single time. So a little bit less about the story. Just curious how that project even came together. Because at the time, you're still a young guy, but you were a really young guy back then putting together a feature. So I never got that backstory. I'd love to hear it. That's a really good question. I mean, on some level, I actually don't remember how Douglas, the writer-director, and I actually met and got hooked up. I think it was through, you know, a network. It was through a mutual friend. He had a script that he wanted to try and get made, and I read it, and I thought about the budget, talked to a casting director, talked about cast, and decided whether it was something that we can actually pull off. And, you know, we were young. We decided, why not? Let's go and do this. I was also working on another feature film at the time called Half-Life with uh, writer-director Jennifer Pong. And I had just kind of come out of the studio system. When I first moved out here, I was working for a production company at Universal. 
and kind of was going through the ranks at that production company that had a first look deal at Universal. And then eventually uh, that production company also moved to Sony and continued their movie making there. But doing independent film was something that I really wanted to do because I felt like a lot of the people in the work, the more kind of the corporate studio world, were not getting as much hands-on physical production experience, hands-on actual movie making. It was a lot of development. It was a lot of, it was great because it was a lot of reading and I love reading scripts. It was a lot of, you know, meeting with writers, uh, but it wasn't working with writers. It wasn't necessarily actually seeing something come from the page and make it into a reality. I actually was lucky in that my first job was working on a huge studio film. My boss was directing Terminator 3 at the time. So I actually did get to see how something gets made from page, you know, into the theaters, into a big blockbuster, heavily anticipated movie event. But for a lot of us, a lot of my peers and a lot of us, we didn't really get a chance to actually do. I mean, even on that movie, I didn't really wasn't hands on. I was hands on and making coffee and delivering dry cleaning. But, you know, we were never really kind of making movies. And so it was really nice to be able to have this network of people to say, hey, friend of mine has this great script, but doesn't know how to make it. And so using some of the network that I had as a fledgling producer, you know, I was able to raise a little bit of money, get the movie made. We started casting. We loved our cast at Taylor Negron, Steve Ryan, Missy Pyle, D.B. Sweeney, and Kurtwood Smith. And we were able to get it made. And we got it to a whole bunch of different festivals. We got distribution. And it was a lot of fun. And it was great. And it was a great experience for us as well. And we just went out and did it. We you know, kind of pulled in favors. We called people. It was all about the network. Hey, we need a first AD. We need a great gaffer. A lot of the people that worked on entry level also worked on Half-Life, which was the other independent film that I was producing at the time. So, you know, it's a small world, even though it's a big town. And, you know, that was the joy. It was getting a bunch of people together who are really passionate about what they do and putting the team together and just doing it. What was the budget on entry level? The budget for entry level was... Probably around 100,000, maybe a little less, is my guess, is my memory. Wow. It was a feature film. You know, Douglas had previously done a bunch of shorts that were excellent and wonderful and also got a lot of acclaim and had some great actors and actresses in it, which was also another great reason why I really wanted to work with him because this would have been his, a great feature. And it really was. You guys had some pretty big names for that kind of a budget. We did. We got lucky. I mean, a lot of it was because the script was light and, and enjoyable and funny and approachable and relatable. I mean, on some level, it probably had to do with the way that we had structured the deals. You know, that was coming out at a particular time when we could offer some kind of back end and not so much front end. We were, because we had such a micro budget, you know, everyone was working under a ultra low budget SAG scale. So everyone was doing it because they loved the project, because they loved the script. And because they liked Douglas, no one was doing it for the money. I can tell you that much. Do you think more or less projects of that size or, you know, I'd almost categorize that as the under a million bucket are being done today? It's tricky. I think that under a million is, I would like to think that there are still a lot of under a million movies being made. I do think that there are probably a lot more under... $3 million movies being made with some great actors and actresses, a lot of which you'll be able to see, you know, I'm not sure how much something like, let's say, Lady Bird cost or how much Three Billboards cost. A lot of those are backed by, I'm not sure about those two movies, but a lot of movies are backed by, you know, the independent arm of a studio. 
It's not mm-hmm. actually necessarily an indie film. But, you know, you have movies like Whiplash, you know, Damien Chazelle's feature before La La Land, which was, you know, a true just independent film, you know, but he had some great actors in there as well. And that really put him on a map and put his filmmaking on a map, his storytelling on a map. And La La Land, which he had kind of started writing before Whiplash, then was able to get some traction and allowed him to be able to really do what he wanted to be able to do with that with that project. Is that Under a Million Realm a place that you still play in regularly or is it a place that you think you've graduated from? I like to think... Well, I don't play in it as much lately, mostly because what I realized is that raising money for one film at a time is very arduous. It's a very risky business, as you know, especially when you're raising money for people who are not in the entertainment industry. A lot of them are saying, okay, well, what is the ROI and how many years? What is the ROI after 12 months? What's the ROI after 24 months? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Zero. Get used to it. And, and the idea that you can spend a million dollars on something and not even be able to sell it for parts, theoretically. Theoretically speaking, you can give a million dollars to someone who may not know what they're doing and they can spend it all hiring actors, talent, crew, marketing, everything. You can spend it all and then have something that doesn't hold water, doesn't hold weight, isn't marketable, isn't sellable, isn't worth anything. I mean, they could take that million dollars, put it into a piece of land at the height of the market, market crashes, you can still sell that piece of land theoretically for a loss, but you can still get something out of it. That's not the case for film, and so it makes it inherently very risky. What I ended up doing was I ended up creating a small fund with a couple of other producers whereby we took investments and we, we diversified it across now 10 to 12 different projects. And we went to multiple different investors and created this pool of money, some of which we invested in other people's projects, some of which we invested in our own projects. And that portfolio that we had created allowed us to be able to make small films or projects or invest in other studio bigger films and be able to make a return on investment for our investors, even if not every single one of those 10 to 12 different projects actually ended up getting made. Yeah. You almost created like a mini studio because that's really the studio model is to diversify the risk across a bunch of projects and knowing that a bunch of them are going to be flops, a bunch of them are going to be average, and then a bunch of them are going to be hits, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting because we actually kind of did it also not just to benefit the investors but also in some ways to benefit the people working on the films. My career goal is to find people that I love to work with and work with them over and over and over again. And so the crew that we would use on a film that would have a tiny, minuscule budget, we would also use on a film that had a much bigger budget. And so, you know, we said, look, you know, I'm not just only going to come to you when I can only pay you $100 a day. I'm also going to come to you when we can pay you a lot more per day, your regular rate. And but because we have this professional relationship that is bound by trust and we trust each other, they're much more willing to say, I did a great huge project with you guys before. Let's do this small little project. And it doesn't, you know, we can just pay me enough to take money off the table out of the conversation. And let's do this because I love the project. I love working with you guys. We love working together and we love making stuff together. And so having a slate also helped our relationships with the crew. Absolutely. Yeah, and I love that you bring that up because that's probably my mantra as well. I really try to, and as a company, Marching Penguin tries to do this, is bring in people that we'll work with and 
continue to work with them as far as it can possibly go, you know, and, and love to think that folks that we work with here will work on a feature that we do someday or a TV show that we do someday, right? So there's inherent benefit across the board to keeping those relationships going. But the question I want to ask you, which is, you know, kind of broader conversation that I'd mentioned we'd talk about just around how our industry could be better is, you know, I do see that with some tenured folks like yourself, like me, like other producers that I talk to that have kind of a long view in mind in terms of their relationships, but I only see it in pockets, right? So it's not systematic in the industry. Our industry is notorious for mistreating people, which is why the unions came to rise. Why do you think there is so much mistrust in our industry? And if you can go so far as to propose some solutions, what are those solutions to that? Like, how do we break through what's been the the legacy of this industry for the past hundred years or however many years you'd say we've existed? Uh, Well, I would say that, you know, obviously, like anything, there are multiple various different factors that play into into something like this. And, And some of it is is more uh, some of it's been around for decades like you kind of imply and, and some of it is just by human nature of how we ingest content i think on some level there isn't as much what we call it, loyalty per se in some level partially because that you know popularity is somewhat fleeting and so you know hollywood tends to minimize their risk by latching on to someone who's really big everything is going all at once and you've got a great actor who's in everything and who has become the biggest thing and on the flip side of that coin is when for one reason or another they kind of fall off the radar of certain people then you never hear from them they may be a great actress or a great actor and you don't see them as much simply because they're not hot right now and i think that there is a that's a problem i think that's not just a problem with with regards to the business side of movies it's not just with regards to oh they're not going to sell the tickets that, that someone else can because someone else is hot i understand that as moviegoers and as a mass there is probably a mathematical or statistical data that shows that we are going to be more likely to purchase tickets to a movie that stars an actor or actress that was just in another big blockbuster movie. But the the problem is that it doesn't necessarily mean that someone else who's extraordinary actor and actress that we haven't seen in a while can't do just as an amazing job. It just minimizes that risk in a portfolio. And so what happens is that this becomes a numbers game. And the numbers game trumps sometimes the creativity. It trumps the the true storytelling nature. And so the second part of that is that it also is a problem for the relationship that an actor or actress can have with an audience. By the movies that are being made coming in pockets or in waves, you know, an audience isn't really allowed or given a chance to establish some kind of audience to actor relationship over the course of a long term. It's very just kind of in these grand spurts. And you do see, you know, a lot of great actors who have been around for a long time, who have done a lot of great work. And audiences do gravitate toward them over the long term because they've had that chance over several decades to kind of, so to speak, get to know them, get to know their work, get to know the movies that they've had. But it's very hard, and obviously this is not just for actors and actresses, but it's very hard when things are hot or not, things are all or nothing 
for there to be a relationship. And that is true for an audience and the film. It's true for crew and the producer. It's true for a writer and a studio. It's it's true for all of the various different web of, of relationships. It's really hard to establish that trust when everything is constantly changing. Now, it's creative. So change is also good. On the, you know, the other side of that, obviously, is the fact that if we get into a rut, let's say negatively, treating people a certain way or the lack of diversity in Hollywood, you know, this is the flip side of that coin where it tends to be, well, this is the way it's always been done. So there's no change there. And so, you know, finding that balance of saying, look, this is, this is the change that is good. You know, maybe it's always should have been this way. You know, having diversity in Hollywood should have always existed or it lagged behind the change that we saw in our own society, certainly. And it's lagging behind and that's the problem we're trying to fix that. I think a great example is Spider-Man Homecoming from a casting perspective. This was a very diverse cast of high school students. The characters weren't diverse because of their race or their skin color or their background. They were just a snapshot of America or of a part of America. And so it's nice to feel like they're not being celebrated because of their race. You know, I don't want to be, as an Asian American, I don't want to be celebrated because I'm Asian American. <laughs> I would like to be celebrated because I am good at what I do or because I am a great storyteller or because I'm a great, a nice person even, you know, or because I happen to find a wallet on the street and, and return it. You know, it's like, I don't want those things to be because I'm Asian American. You know, I want them to be because of what I do or my actions. So I think that the greater opportunity that we can give people to show what they can do with their talents, not because of their background, but it, perhaps in spite of their background, what they can do, then, then everything is going to become much more accepting in general. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was good. I was just like processing. <laughs> wait, wait, so we kind of went off on a wait, tangent. Wait, there, no, too, no, so. I, I know. Kind of wanted to go almost back to the original question and in a way re-ask it. I'm just kind of forgetting what the original question was. That's oh, just about, I think we were talking about loyalty and you had mentioned there being these, or I had said actually that there's, there's these pockets of producers like you and I that do show the loyalty and do take the long view, but that's not always the case. And you kind of mentioned, oh, well, some of that has to do with what's hot or not and that mentality and that not just mentality, but just th that's kind of a way of life. It's a practice. Exactly. So I guess the follow up to that, which you started to get into, but would love for you to kind of address more directly is, yeah, how do we solve some of that? How do we get people to, you know, stop in a way? It's almost like high school all over again, right? Where you are, you know, following the jocks because, you know, they're <laughs> part of the football team or the basketball team or the cheerleaders because they're at all the sports events. And it becomes very much about, you know, what's happening in the moment. And there's, it's almost a little too superficial, and then you miss out on all the other stuff. And I say it's like high school because everyone knows that, you know, what happens in high school is rarely a reflection of what happens later in life, you know. And so if we adopt that mentality to Hollywood, it's like, sure, there's a lot of great things that happen in the industry. But imagine how much better we could be if we didn't have this high school mentality all the time. I would like to think that it might stem, I mean, one, so to speak, solution or one area that we could, we all as members of this Hollywood community could improve on is this idea of succession, is the idea of the next generation, is the idea of not just how can I build my company, my portfolio, my rap sheet, my you know history of all the things that I've worked on 
to be better? Or how do I get awards? It's a matter of saying, how can we create something in such a way that we can inspire the next generation, inspire tomorrow's filmmaker as well? How can I bring on a new producer? How can I bring on new people that will come after me inevitably and show them the trials and tribulations that I'm going through with this particular project and getting them hands-on experience? Because I think that what happens is we do tend to you know, get into these pockets and feel comfortable in these pockets, but we don't have as much of an ability either to feel comfortable banding together or feeling comfortable stretching out because there are a lot of times when we stretch out and we get burned. Absolutely. And I think that the more that we can say, look, getting burned may be part of how we go about this world. This getting burned does not exist just in the entertainment industry. I mean, it probably exists in every industry on a large scale, which is unfortunate. Yeah. But I think as soon as the emphasis turns toward how can we make our industry better for tomorrow's generation, not just for us, how can we make it better for the next generation of filmmakers, of writers, and how can we bring them up how can we bring them up to see what's wrong with the way that we do things now so that they can do it and yet give them the freedom to be able to do it better in the next generation? And I think that we will see that the tides will turn because so much of the industry tends to focus on what's good for me, what's good for the way that I'm doing it. And, you know, taking, let's say, big corporations, you know, obviously individuals at studios, you know, there are a lot of great people that work there. A lot of people, you know, feel like studios tend to do things the way they've always been done and wish that there was more innovation and chances and more risks taken. Now, I'm sure there are people who work there that are great and they would love to take more risks. But, you know, sometimes when you're part of a big machine, you're less able to do that. You have less tools at your disposal to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I can say this since I'm not part of a big corporation, even though we have some clients that are big corporations, but I think the term corporation and risk are completely two <laughs> different sides of the spectrum, right? It's just not in their nature to take risks as a general rule. So it's about risk mitigation. You know? Right. And it's hard to move. I think that as a larger company, you're responsible for a lot more people. If you're a public company, now you are responsible to your shareholders who only care about bottom lines and not necessarily the stories that are being told. The quality, it's more quantity, not quality. And so that's the danger that any sort of growth business gets into is where are my priorities? Where are my values? And when you grow, you know, Marching Penguin and my producer, you grow any business that you have, if you put keeping and maintaining your values, no matter how big your company gets, then you're going to be growing your next generation. You're going to be growing the next generation of people that are going to say, let's not stay in pockets. This is not how it has to be done. We can be able to be effective in ways that we didn't think we were prior to this because we can't be bullied. as Love it. So let's switch gears. I want to go back and talk about Terminator 3. Because you have never told me much about this. So out of personal curiosity, although I'm sure our listeners are interested to know, tell me more about the project. And did you walk around for months at a time quoting previous lines from... (laughs) (laughs) Probably what made working on that film extraordinarily dynamic for me and, and for everyone that was working on it was that it was just before Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor. In fact, it was, I believe, his last project... Before he became governor. Before he became, he became governor? <laughs> and so... What? <laughs> it's, like, it's like the whole thing. If you had like taken a break from the campaign and just went to sleep for a year when you know Trump and Hillary were going at it, and then you woke up a year later, it's like, 
wait, who's president? No, come on. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was fascinating because, you know, I mean, it was great to be able to learn. Obviously, this was my first job. I was an intern, you know, a few years before, and they were the production company was making a, another big movie. But this was the really the first time that I kind of was in the trenches. And so it was really great to see, you know, get to hear... And of course, meet, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger as a character and as a person who was, was a very fascinating person to me. And I think if you've ever seen Pumping Iron, which is a documentary when he was bodybuilding, I mean, there's so much of that that just even still rings true today. I mean, just by his personality, that's so fascinating. I mean, he can command the room just by entering and saying one or two things and he can command a conversation. He can direct everything. I mean, he has a presence that few people, you know, have. But it was fascinating because then he parlayed all of the publicity for Terminator 3. He didn't even have to try, but it all became about his conversation about his becoming governor. Hmm. And it was perfect. He was getting all this, so to speak, free publicity and got his face on television and on billboards and everywhere plastered around California. And it was for Terminator 3, but it was also kind of for his run for governor. That's what made that so fascinating. Of course, it was also fascinating because it's a franchise. It's a huge franchise. And to have the privilege of working with Jonathan Mostow, who is a great writer-director, and how he had to kind of navigate the realm of a franchise, a beloved franchise, and yet still make it his own. It's a difficult process, but it was fascinating. It was fascinating to hear about the rights, you know, even from a, from a legal perspective. It's the obviously T1 and T2 were James Cameron, but this one was not, a, T3 was not a James Cameron film. So, you know, to fill those shoes, to be able to do what you can with that property, it was all a huge film school learning experience. I mean, that was my film school, hmm. was to work on that project for so long. And of course, it's a $200 million film. You know, I mean, when do you get to watch, you know, them construct a quarter mile of a fake street only to tear it down with a car chase scene over and over and over again? That was probably one of the more fun moments. Um, but, you know, even besides Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, you also had Kristana Loken, who hadn't done an extraordinary amount of work up until that point. And so this was a huge role for her. And then you had someone like Claire Danes, who's been in this industry forever and was a great person to have on set all the time. I think the very first time I met you, we, I think it was Water Gardens where HBO was. And it was another, I forget her name. Jen Crucius. Probably, yeah. 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 Now Jen Stetson. Yeah. So yeah. Jen, Jen Stetson worked for Janet Graham Borba over at HBO. Okay. That's probably how why we I had that why I have that yeah. memory, but I didn't ever work at, at HBO. Where were you at that point? I was always working for Mostal Lieberman, which was at Universal and then Sony. And then I went out and did a bunch of independent films that went to Sundance and Cannes Film Festivals and Monte Carlo Film Festivals. And then started kind of the film fund. And then, you know, we've got a feature with Overbrook and at Sony. And then this, you know, working with brands, working with brands on their storytelling. Got it. So let's throw something fun in the mix. What's the worst project you've ever worked on? And and you don't have to name names. 
I mean, you can <laughs> if you want, you know, but it, we're not, this show's not about naming names. So. Right. It's funny. You know, it's, it's hard to answer the, what's the worst because, you know, I think we've all had projects come our way that just aren't for us and we're not really that passionate about it and we let them pass us by and that's fine. Or we work on them for a little bit to try and get it, try and help because maybe we know them. We know the, the person that we want to work with. We want to help them get to the next step, but ultimately things don't go and that's all right. I don't know that I had a nightmare scenario. But, you know, I've probably had a lot more nightmare scenarios with projects that I love, you know, projects that I'm so passionate about and I would, you know, give my right arm to get made and it's been 10 years and it's still going. And so those are the moments when you have something that's so great and you believe in so much and it breaks your heart and then you try and rebuild it and you get it done and you get it with uh, another studio and you get it almost there and, and then it falls apart again for one reason or another. Those are hard because it's in some ways it's like a, I guess like a, a bad relationship where, you know, you're kind of in and out and in and out. Yeah. So on again and off again, I'll put it that way. And it's difficult and it's hard, but I can't say that I've worked with anyone that I would never work with again. I've worked with some people that are probably more difficult than others. I would say that there was a film that I was working on and we only had about a 19 day shoot and we were through 11 days. Maybe it was a 21 day shoot, but we were through 11 days and we had to meet about whether we were going to just call it because, you know, one of our pieces of talent was not working out so well. And we had to decide, do we push through? Do we sit down with them and really, and we had already sat down with them about their dedication to the project. And, you know, we had to make a decision. We had to run the numbers. We had to decide, do we call it? Do we recast and start all over? Or do we believe that this person's right for the role, which we did? It just was, you know, there's certain things that just felt like they weren't all in on this project. Wow. And so it was, it was, it was getting to the point where it was affecting the quality of the work for everyone else. That's brutal. And so that was a tough one. I mean, that, that whole project was difficult, but, you know, we ended up working through it and having a nice heart to heart. And, you know, I will say that that, that person, you know, really stepped up after that and, you know, can really did a great job and, and you would never know. You would never know otherwise. But, you know, there's that there's that moment where you think, wow, is this literally going to, we're already in production. We're more than halfway through and it may all come crashing down. Yeah. And if it did come crashing down, it would be because we had to pull the plug. Yeah. Which is a terrible decision you hope never have to be in the position for. Yeah, absolutely. That's scary. I mean, it's almost, it points out how different the industry is from, anything else because number one to people that are outside of the industry I always talk about the fact that doing projects whether it's you know branded content or a feature a TV show every time you start a new project it's essentially like doing a startup because you're, you're building the staffing from scratch you're either building or pulling in new IP and you're constructing everything as if it's the first time and so because of that it's extremely taxing time-consuming there's a lot of challenges that are unexpected that come up, even for very tenured producers and people that have a lot of resources. It's just you're doing it all for the first time. So that, on top of the fact that if you have a personnel issue, which is essentially what you had, in the corporate world, what HR does is they just come in and say, well, you know, we can either fire them outright or we can have a heart to heart. But nine times out of ten, and, you know, a lot of companies won't come out and say this, but this is what happens. They're kind of hoping that 
the person either quits or that they fire them pretty quickly, right? Because they just want to get rid of the problem. Right. But in this case, it's like if you get rid of the quote unquote problem, well, you've just created a massive problem on top of that, right? Like the whole business is at stake. So I, exactly. I find that fascinating. It's true. I mean, and like you said, it's basically saying it's almost, it's you're not giving up the IP, but we were responsible for a lot of crew members too. A lot of people that were counting on us. So it, it becomes a matter of saying, you know, what's best for this project? We all had to come back to what's best for the project. You know, as much as we cared about, you know, the people that, you know, our investors or we cared about the crew, we cared about anything. It was like, what is best for this project? Is this person, is this piece of talent the best thing for this project? And creatively speaking, on screen, it was still. It had not yet gotten to the point where now the work on the dailies was just unusable. It had not gone to that point, but we could we could see it getting to that point, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, and what, what we didn't want to have happen was for us to be on day 20 out of day 21 and realize that everything from day 12 to day 20 was unusable. And now now what do we do? Yeah. Um, so we tried to really have that discussion early, although it was a very difficult discussion. But we did, we did get through. And I think that with the communication, like any relationship, whether it is with crew or actors or writers or directors, you know, having that communication on the earlier side of things really helped and benefit the project in the in the long run. So we were all really proud of of how we overcame that, which was nice. Awesome. I'm glad you came out of it. I'd hate I hate it if that story ended with and then we just pulled the plug on the project and everyone lost their money. No, <laughs> it's uh, true. And that, and then the unfortunate part is that that happens. I mean, that happens on very on legendary films. I mean, the times that you read about, you know, let's let's use Back to the Future as an example. You know, Michael J. Fox was not the first person that they cast for that role. Right. They were filming with another actor, yeah, a whole bunch of scenes that are now totally iconic to that film, and it's weird. You can watch them on YouTube now, but I mean, if you watch them and you expect to see Michael J. Fox's face pop around the corner, and it's someone else, you know, wearing that puffy down jacket yeah. and sneakers and jeans and getting out of the DeLorean, it's just it's just kind of weird. Amazing but that happens, and yeah, and those are the hard decisions that, that one has to make. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, what's your advice? For two groups of people, and this might be a funny way of putting it, but I think it'll make sense when we get into it, for above-the-line folks in the industry and then for below-the-line folks. Because I think philosophically the focus is a little bit different for each group, just in terms of how they develop their careers. I think we'll, we'll start with you know, below the line. I mean, I, I love working with crews. I love, you know, for me, I'm not the type of producer that likes to just read and sit in the office and send someone out and have it all happen elsewhere. I, I really love being on the ground and, and being involved with the crew. I think they're such an important part of the puzzle. They are kind of essential to everything, even though their names don't come first, you know, on a film. I think that it's all about the relationships with regards to anyone. And I think that, you know, having the relationships, keeping them up and being and saying, look, I am passionate about what I do and I'm passionate about working. I've moved in for some people, they've moved 3000 miles away to do this, to be a boom operator, to be a gaffer, to be a grip, to be an electrician. And I love working with the people who are just passionate about it. And I think that working with people that you love working with is really important and not settling for working on a project that drains your soul either because you're not treated very well because maybe someone feels like certain roles and below the line are commodities and if they just replace someone they're not going to be missed or they can easily be replicated don't let that 
get you down. Don't let that stop your ability to find work that you love doing. Because everyone that I know below the line that has been really successful are people who have said, I am not going to work on a project that I don't love. or I'm not going to work on a project with people that don't treat me very well because it's not worth it. There are a lot of projects going on. And even though, you know, obviously you need to be, you know, we all need to be employed and we need to be able to pay bills. But on some level, I think that kind of like what we had talked a little bit about earlier, what we've talked about in the past is, you know, even if you sacrifice a certain percentage of income, but you have a huge amount of value and a, and a, a lot of positives that come into your life based on the quality of work that you're doing and the people that you're doing it with, and the relationships that you have, that actually will, in the long run will actually serve you much better in the future and will in turn then create a lot more job opportunities. Because I think that with those relationships, People that are good at what they do and love what they do and love working with the people that they're working with are inherently going to perform better and they're going to, you know, want to get to work early because they love getting to work and they can't wait to see their coworkers and hang out with them because it's an enjoyable work experience. And then what happens is that those people tend to get more work over and over and over again. And I think that having, finding those relationships, cultivating those relationships and also not settling for projects that are not going to treat you very well. You know, all those things in the long run are going to make you much happier. Yeah, 100% agree. So I'll, I'll push you a little harder on this because I do agree. But I think a lot of times folks out there will say, I get that. You know, Mark, I've been here for five years and I've made some good friends and I work with them consistently. How do you build those relationships beyond some of the obvious, right? Which is like, be nice to people, stay in touch with people. Do you have any tips, again, for someone that's been in the industry for a while on how you foster good relationships? Cultivating relationships is key. How that happens is obviously, you know, it's not just the idea, but it's the execution is also important. So I think your question is basically how do you cultivate those relationships? Yeah, because I think it doesn't it doesn't always come naturally to people. You know, I, in some cases it does. And, and I'll be perfectly honest, in, in my career, it, I had to, I think, compared to my 20s and my 30s, I made a bit of a pivot, which is in my business relationships, I decided to be more like I was in my personal relationships. I was a little bit more structured and rigid in my business relationships. And I realized that in my 30s, if I would just act like I would with my friends, that things got a lot better because I wasn't keeping score. I wasn't compartmentalizing things. I wasn't afraid to say things. You know, I just realized like if you just kind of stand on the moral underpinnings of what your character is and what makes you you, then you're going to do just fine. You're going to build relationships with good people. They're going to respect who you are, you know, and so that's worked for me. You know, I've I've actually opened up personally to a lot of clients, a lot of people that I never thought I would in my 30s, because, again, it goes back to that philosophy that I've developed. So, you know, that's just me, but I'm sure that you have a take on how you think there's a way to execute building those relationships. I've always been of the philosophy that if you give a lot, you will get back in return much more. Specifically speaking, it would be not just saying when someone calls me and recommends me for a job, I'm going to go and do that job and I'm going to do a great job and, and make sure that the person who recommended me uh, recommended me is going to you know, is going to earn the trust of the person that they asked and because I am going to do this job and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. I'm going to do a great job. I'm going to knock it out of the park. Beyond that, I think it's actually even more important to say, 
what can I do now to recommend others? Cultivating the network is not just doing great at your own job, doing great something at something that you've been asked to do. Cultivating relationships is also a matter of saying, hey, I would want to recommend this other person for a particular job. Or if you call me and a job's not quite right, I'm going to say, I'm not quite right, but I know who is. I know who could be perfect for you. I know who could be perfect for this project. And even if it's someone who is in that same role, if it's someone who's in a slightly different role, also below the line, and it's not just paying it forward. I think in my case, in my mind, I believe it is, this is how you cultivate relationships. You're recommending other people for a particular job or jobs. And so part of me feels like if you are really great at recommending people for certain work, even work that you may have taken yourself, but for one reason or another, don't think it's perfect because you don't want to settle or because the timing is not quite right. Those people who have been recommended by you and you get no, so to speak, no benefit from it at all because you're not also, you know, you're not getting a cut. You're not their agent. You're not on that project, perhaps even. All of those people will remember, or at least a certain percentage of them will say, hey, I appreciated that you got me that job on whatever show. And if you, you know, some other show that now I'm on, I'm going to give you a call and say, hey, you should come join us. And I'm going to tell my producers that they should join you. And if you do that enough times, if you recommend other people, if you recommend 10 other people, you know, let's say even if only two of them go on to be a part of a big show and recommend you, that's two more projects that you could be a part of that you wouldn't have been a part of if you hadn't recommended 10 other people. So I think cultivating the relationships is also giving back. It's giving it to other people that are around you, other people who are at your level or even higher or lower. And that opportunity, that sense of spreading opportunity and sharing opportunity, even though there's the temptation of saying, I'm going to keep all the opportunities to myself and I'm going to cultivate my network by knocking everything that I do out of the park and everyone's going to call me because I'm so good at it. It's not, that's only part of it. Part of it is cultivating the community and helping others around you. And I think that the more people that love and trust you because they know you're looking out for them, they're going to look out for you too. And that won't happen in every single case, but in the long run, it's always going to be much more beneficial. Definitely. Definitely. Words of wisdom. So you told me a story once about a feature that you were working on. And like I said before, we do not name <laughs> names here, so we won't name them. But there was an actor that forgot his or her lines. Oh, and it's, it's the perils of very low budget feature filmmaking, I think. We had a, a wonderful actor came in for us. Awesome actor, doing amazing things. We were on location in a State Department building so that we could avoid some location fees. But uh, we were in an office building and we were actually filming in offices because we couldn't film on a soundstage. We just didn't have the budget. And so we were in this small office that was probably about 10 feet by 12 feet. I mean, pretty small by all sorts of the imagination. Must have gotten hot. It was very hot. And fortunately, with the acoustical tile ceiling, we could mount lights up above the ceiling line. But in general, it was pretty, it was pretty tight. But the, the, you know, everyone was great. Uh, everyone's in great spirits and the crew was great and the actors were great. Until we started filming. And then our poor actor who had come in clearly came in, either was having a bad day or just came in underprepared and did not know his lines. And it was a pretty lengthy scene. It was several pages. And uh, in fact, this was a our lead actor and this particular actor would come back over and over again over the course of the feature film, over the course of the story. So we were we were filming a lot of various different scenes, but all in this particular location. 
And this poor guy kept forgetting his lines to the point where it started actually messing up our other lead actor with his lines. And we tried, you know what? We said, look, we're going to write out your lines on a big piece of white cardboard so you can just read them. Even though it's not ideal, it's better than what what we've been getting thus far. We've been filming for probably two to three hours of not very useful footage. We decided, all right, we're just going to write out your words and you just read them. Unfortunately, the office was on location was so small and his eyesight wasn't spectacular either. So we had to write it big enough so that he could read them. But unfortunately, it was so big that when we filmed him, you can see his eyes move from left to right and then left to right and then left to right as he's reading his lines because the room was so small and the sign was too close. And so it made actually life very difficult for the crew, obviously not just for the actors, but also for the crew and the director and the DP and the sound person. Who and we did so many takes. It probably was the worst for our editor who then had to go back and try and cut and paste and somehow salvage the scene so that it would actually make sense because there were just so many pieces you know, left here and there that were workable. And to his credit, you would never know from the final product. He was able to piece it all together. But there were so many different, you know, I will say it was also a scene that involved a lot of props being moved around. So there's a lot of continuity issues with Ooh. regards to <laughs> when things were being moved around and, and when lines were being said before or after a piece of, uh, you know, something on the desk was moved. And so it was, it was <laughs> a complete, I mean, our scripty, our script yeah. supervisor was having, was having a nightmare time during this whole thing too. <laughs> I was going to say just frantically writing. It was, it was, it was, <laughs> it was actually awful at yeah. the time. And, yeah. it, and it really wasn't until we saw the whole scene come together thankfully to our magician editor that we felt okay about it but that was kind of the nightmare sequence on that and it all it all basically just stemmed from the fact that he didn't know his lines right you didn't talk about how you solved it though (laughs) i don't know well we didn't really solve it it was really the editor that like magically made it all work we took a break we said look go learn your lines please please and we'll take a break. At this point, it may have been actually a lunch break. We'd spent all morning doing this. And he went off, learned his lines, and came back. And unfortunately, at this point, he had kind of messed up the rhythm that our lead actor now was starting to lose his lines. And the whole scene was was only supposed to take half a day. Ended up taking a whole day. In fact, it, we had him come back the next day and have to, you know, finish up some of the previous, pre, what was supposed to be done the previous morning. And then at some point, we just had to call it because we were only in the location for so many days. We were already behind at this point by about three quarters of a day, which for a 17-day shoot is a long time and was a low budget. So we were burning, so to speak, money as we were doing this as well. And so at at some point it just became, okay, do we have enough to just move on? We might have to cut some scenes. We might have to just keep our fingers crossed that it all fits together in the end. And it ended up fitting all together in the end. And I'm not sure how our editor do it, but editor did it. But he was a he was a master, and uh, I am forever grateful for that. That's hilarious. <laughs> but the so, actor the actor is a great actor. I mean, the guy yeah. the guy does a lot of work. He's very well known, and and I think he was just probably just having a having a rough day. I, I think you're probably being kind. I, I'm gonna say <laughs> say what I think he was going on. Do you, do you know what I'm thinking? <laughs> I'll 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 give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he came from a, a primarily an improvisational background and he was very good at improv. But when we made him stick to his lines, it was all over. Maybe okay, that's fair. I was gonna say Occam's Razor. <laughs> I think it was just a late night. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, we'll we'll move on from that. Let's just hope it doesn't happen for too many other producers in the future. I know. 
I know how bad that can be. I had it happen on a short film of mine once, and, uh, and it was my own money in the short film, so it was brutal. I, I definitely <laughs> empathize with that situation. Uh, so let's switch gears and talk a little bit about what you're doing nowadays. You're working with a major gaming brand, doing some interesting, interesting branded content work. Right. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about that and, you know, what's the approach on storytelling, you know, as opposed to how you normally approach storytelling with independent films. Sure. Well, I've always considered myself a storyteller first and always putting the emphasis on story, whether it's a feature film, obviously, especially a feature film or television project or whatever it may be. It all came down to what's the story? What is engaging me as an audience member to this story that's going to make me watch it? Maybe watch it over and over and over again. And what I've realized over the past several years is that that concept of engaging an audience member from storytelling is not, does not exist just with features or television. It also applies actually with anything where there is a, some kind of product or service and an audience or customer. Cultivating that is tantamount to creating a relationship, creating, again, we're, we're talking about relationships. This has been kind of an ongoing theme today, but it is not, it is treating that customer slash product or service slash audience or whatever it may be, it is not transactional. You know, that link is not transactional, but it's a relationship. And that's something that actually a mentor of mine, Peter Guber, is really big on that. It's it's a matter of you're, you're cultivating something through a relationship. And, and it's through that relationship that you're going to be able to get engagement from your customer. And brands, you know, whereas I think before brands would always go to an ad agency and create a campaign and create a message now I think that there is a slight movement. Now I think it's more with the more forward-thinking gaming companies and tech companies that realize that they can be more nimble, they can do things you know, on a dime, and if it doesn't work, then they can abandon it, or if it does work, then they're going to go all in. And so I'm working with a tech company that really believes that they can create content based on the characters of their mobile game. The stories themselves don't have to emulate the game itself. It's not about creating a story within the game. It is about engaging the players on a n totally new level to say, what are these characters doing? What are they doing when they're not being part of my game? You know, what are the interesting stories that can be told that are going to make me more interested in playing this game? And perhaps most importantly, if you're talking about bottom lines, you know, a lot of mobile games have a decrease over the course of years because people tend to jump ship and play a different game, whatever's new. What they're trying to do is they're trying to engage their audience on new levels so that that exodus does not happen as quickly. In fact, they found that by engaging their audience on different levels, not just with the game, but it not only does it decrease the rate of, of movement to a different game, it actually increases and, and they gain new viewership or new game gameplay, new players, even later in the life of a particular game. Mm. And so it's really, it's really very effective and I've been very privileged to work with, uh, with some great people over at this big company and uh, there's another game team, in fact, that has engaged me as well. This is actually a new game that's going to be coming out and they would like to incorporate storytelling right from the get-go, right from the beginning, uh, as opposed to waiting for you know, five years of getting players on board first and then engaging them, they're doing it right from the beginning. And I, I think as these companies, whether they're mobile games or, you know, I'm working with a retailer as well, as they start to have the ability to connect with their audience through their own app or through their own platform, now all of a sudden, you know, they have an opportunity to reach out 
to their customers and engage them on another level. They don't need to rely on television commercials to do that. They can actually now do this themselves. They can do it through through an internet channel, but they can also do it through an app that they have. I mean, Target has their own app. Obviously, the other other huge ones like Uber or Lyft. When I'm engaged by these companies, I, what I tell them is you're not competing for people's money anymore, or it, that shouldn't be the emphasis. The emphasis is really how you're competing for people's time. There are 500 scripted shows in Hollywood being produced right now. I mean, it's more than ever. We just don't have the time to watch all that stuff. Even with the advent of DVRs and Netflix and, and you know, SVOD and, or, you know, subscription VODs or VODs or streaming, even with all that, we still can't watch everything. Of course not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm watching a show right as we're recording this podcast and <laughs> yeah. still not, still yeah. not able well, to catch up. That's what's going yeah. on back there. I'm trying know. to catch up on Altered Carbon, by the way. <laughs> Just stay. <laughs> but. So, yeah, I mean, so now it's, so it's the idea that if you can successfully compete for a customer's time, then the money will follow. Yeah. You know, that now they're going to be more engaged because they believe in this particular product because they're more engaged with the product on multiple different levels. There's not it's not transactional, it's a relationship yeah. and the money will will then the revenue will then follow after that. 100%. And I think that's definitely the mantra that Marching Penguin takes on as we approach creating content for brands. But you know, what I throw back to you is kind of from the point of view of skeptics who say, we're not Target, we're not Uber, we're not a big gaming company. How do you expect us to fund these projects and, you know, get people involved? We're, you know, that's that's just not what we do. I think there are skeptics out there that say, this is just a big, big company thing. Well, I think that for anything to be successful, it, it comes down to what story you're telling. And I think that that obviously a smaller company might not have as wide of a reach to tell that story. But the more effective that it is in telling that story to the customers that it does have, the greater ability it has to grow. The greater network effect that that particular company is going to have because people are going to be talking about how they're engaged by that story, even if it's on a subconscious level. And so I think that even the smallest companies still have an opportunity, especially in this day and age where anyone can put up a YouTube channel, anyone can put up an app on some level, whether it is an educational app or whether it is an app to connect parents of a particular elementary school to be able to coordinate you know, carpools or time or books, book swaps or whatever it may be. You know, these are all things that can grow based on the network effect of the customers. And I think that the better and more engaging that story is told, then the more possible it is to really grow. And I, so I don't think that it, ha- it just has to do with Target or Uber or big retail stores or whatever, or whatever it may be that have tons of money to be able to throw at something like this. I don't think that it's about money. I think it's a matter of can, because a lot of these stories, you, you, you know, a lot of the content that we can make, we can actually make for, for much less than just a Super Bowl commercial. And I think this is a matter of you can actually more effectively reach fewer people, but on a greater scale that has a better effect ultimately on your on your bottom line. Now, you know, I'm not, I can't say that I've been a CFO of Target or uh, the CFO of some sort of big box corporation that would have data to say otherwise. But I will say that when you're competing for people's time and you're engaging them, you know, in the long run, the C, the customer lifetime value, the CLV is going to be much greater for people who feel directly engaged than, than those who just see, you know, see these retailers as just a kind of a commodity. I don't care. You know, there are a lot of people who buy something and say, I don't care where I get it from. 
I just want the cheapest price. And so, you know, there are elements where you want to build a certain loyalty where there is none right now. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And I think part of what you're getting at in terms of it doesn't have to cost as much as a Super Bowl is format, right? And in the digital age, there's no shortage of format, right? Right. You can tell stories in so many different ways. And, you know, just like even us, we're doing this podcast right now. It's not a particularly expensive way of creating content. You know, any kind of small business can spin up a podcast. Um, and that can be a starting point, right? And then you can move on from there and hire a videographer and do some content on that front. And then you can level up and maybe hire a production company and you can level up and hire an agency and level up and, you know, hire a big producer like Mark and have him, you know, create these big branded content pieces that are part of a larger series. So there's a lot of different places that you can play in in this day and age that we didn't have 50 years ago. Exactly. And that's, that's the exciting part about creating content in this era. So I think what you're talking about and what you're working on is is really just the beginning. We haven't quite gotten there in terms of all of corporate, but hopefully we will. We'll start to transition away from this campaign-based type of content creation to more sustainable content, right. stuff that is a reflection of the brand's character and the journey that they want their customers to go through, which I think is exciting. And I think it's also... Taking that approach is also timeless. And I think it's actually going to be more useful to a brand, no matter how big or small, in the long run. Because I think that sometimes with messaging campaigns, things get dated. And something is, yeah, that was last year's campaign. That was the campaign from several years ago. As opposed to creating things that really come from the core values of the brand that represent the brand very well in ways that you can watch something totally out of order and not chronologically and still have it be relevant. Definitely. Definitely. Well, Mark, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank uh, you for you, having me. It's yeah. been great. Yeah, definitely. You're a great friend, a great, uh, I would even say mentor in the industry. It's awesome to see you continue to work on different projects. And I know you've got a lot of stuff that you can't talk about right now that, you know, hopefully we'll have you back on in the future and you can't talk about at that point. <laughs> but uh, I continue to root for you and um, best of luck on all the upcoming projects. Thank you. And I look forward to hearing uh, all of your other podcasts. This will be great fun. Awesome. Thanks again, Mark. Sure. This episode is brought to you by Marching Penguin Digital Production Studio. Since 2012, Marching Penguin has been producing premium digital content for venture-backed startups and Fortune 500 companies alike. With more than 1,000 produced videos to date, Marching Penguin has a broad experience set to accommodate marketers looking to create a stronger online footprint with video. Visit GoMarchingPenguin.com to learn more today.